Hey, good morning, Faith Family. It's good to see you. I want to say hello to those in our live venue as well. If you have your Bible, would you please turn to Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20. Man, I say this a lot, but I love being a part of this faith family. It is so awesome to be at a place every week where you just feel like God's at work. I just before this service was out in the commons talking to people and they're like, man, I just started coming a month ago. I just started coming this year. I've been here just the past three months. It's like more and more people that God is just bringing to us, and it's just exciting to be a part of a faith family where the gospel is the culture, the good news of Jesus. It just saturates all that we do, and um, that's just a blessing. I just, that's totally free. Don't count that against my time. I just wanted to say that, all right? <laughs> Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Yeah, three people love you too, right? Um, we're going to finish up the book of Acts pretty quickly. Uh, in fact, I'm thinking about two more weeks. Uh, we've got a series that we want to do to kind of ramp up for Easter, which I know is crazy that Easter is only a few weeks away. But um, we've, been, we've spent like the last five months in the book of Acts. In some ways, it could be a lot longer than that, uh, but we're going we're gonna to start to wrap that up um, uh, here in the next few weeks. Important announcement before we uh, dive in. Uh, who you got in the Super Bowl? Hands for Broncos. Broncos. Hey, wow. Yeah. Uh, what about Panthers? About 50-50. How many of you say Vikings? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Shall we pray? Because uh, like, we're going to need to. Um, how many of you are like, I don't care. I'm just going for the food, baby. All right. Now I know who all the Baptists are. So uh, very good. Very good. All right, as far as I'm concerned, I can preach till 5 o'clock today, right? That gives you 30 minutes to get home and, uh, and get the game, all right? All right, uh, I do actually have an important announcement. That's not the one, okay? Is that uh, you've been hearing a lot about our REACH campaign. Uh, it's kind of kicked off in the information stage. Uh, we had our town halls last week. If you were not able to make it to one of those town halls, please go to the website. Uh, that information is there. Uh, you can uh, read about that, get the information that you need. We'll be updating that frequently, so keep checking back. Also, there's the fax brochure that you can pick up, really, really well-done brochure that answers a lot of your questions regarding REACH about multi-site, about how we're expanding this campus, uh, how we are looking to finance that. All that information is there. We're going to have info tables in the commons with elders, lay leaders, staff uh, each week that you can go and ask your questions about. Please do that. We want you to be informed. One other very important thing is this coming week, um, Thursday, 7 o'clock, our elders are going to have a church-wide prayer for REACH. And so we're just inviting you, if you can come out that night and just join us as we pray uh, we want to seek the Lord's guidance. Uh, we want to do God's will. We want to ask His blessing on this. And so uh, come pray with us if you can do that. Uh, if you can't make it Thursday, then just be praying individually and as a family uh, for uh, really what's coming up is February 28th when we'll ask the church body to vote uh, to affirm this as our direction moving forward uh, for our future. Exciting times, exciting times, but definitely a lot to pray for. So please get the information you need, be praying, and um, if you're a member, for sure, make sure that you're a part of our faith family celebration on the 28th. You ready to get after it? 
Let's do it. Acts 20. If you can stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Acts 20, beginning at verse 17. Luke's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, here's what he said. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, come speak to us this morning, we pray. Lord, it is my heart that after several months of going through this inspired book, the book of Acts, talking about mission, that it will be more than just talk that we will start to see our lives in a whole new way. And that this will become real to us. That's my prayer. Do that to the glory of Jesus, I ask. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The body of Jesus is not hanging on the cross in our sanctuary. And Sarah would be comforted by that. Sarah Miles is the key character in the novel, The End of the Affair. A book that focuses on some journal entries and some old letters that Sarah had written that described a lot of struggles that she had in her life. Struggles with men, relationships, and struggles with God. And there's one particular moment, one letter, where she describes a very dark night. She's outside in the pouring rain trying to find shelter, and the only place that she's able to find shelter is inside this old Catholic church. When she walks inside, she finds herself surrounded by all kinds of religious symbols. There's like paintings of the saints, there's stained glass windows, there's candles that are lit all around the church, but those things don't really capture her attention. What she can't take her eyes off of was a crucifix. And she just kept staring at Jesus' body hanging on a cross. She started thinking about human flesh 
nailed to a cross, pierced, broken, bloodied. And here's what she thought. Quote, I hated that crucifix because I wanted to believe in a God that bore no relation to me. Something vague, something cosmic, to which I had promised something and who would give me something in return. But seeing Jesus on the cross, God was stretching out from the vague into the concrete of life. You know, the truth is, dear friends, a lot of people want exactly what Sarah wanted. They want a God who's distant. They want a God who's kind of out there. They want, shall we say, something that's vague. That way there's nothing expected out of their life. But what Sarah discovered that rainy night in that old Catholic church is what we must discover today in this one, is that the cross of Jesus Christ will not allow that. If we are a people who believe God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross for our sins, that He has given us brand new life, then that must be the defining reality of our lives. The cross will not let you settle for anything less. It's why in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says, you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, for Christ is our life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. If you know it, say it with me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ. Right here, faith family, To follow Jesus Christ means He is not a part of your life. He is your life. It is what the cross demands. And it's precisely what we see in Acts 20 when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And here's why I say that. The Apostle Paul understood that Christ was not just to be a part of his life, Christ was his very life, which meant this, the mission of God for Paul wasn't vague, it was real. When you realize that Christ is your very life, then you begin to realize that your life is daily to be lived on mission. And that's what Paul reveals to these Ephesians. He's about to depart to Jerusalem and then to Rome and then to Spain. And he calls these people that he loves together. He's probably not going to see them again. And he pours his life out on the table. And what they see is that his life and this mission and his life and Jesus Christ were one and the same. 
And it's almost like I want today to be that midterm exam that's just not midterm. That we ask ourselves after five months of going through the book of Acts, is it vague or is it real? Are we just talking about mission or are we on mission? And so here's what I want. I want to happen to us what happened to Sarah. I want, in light of the cross, for the mission to move from the vague into the concrete of our lives by showing you four things from Paul's life that are signs to us that that transition has happened. That we've gone from vague to real in the mission. Number one is this. When the mission starts becoming real in your life, what you're going to discover is that you live with a sense of purpose. You live with a sense of purpose. I take it from verse 22. Let's read. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except this, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now how would you like that to be your life verse? I don't see that verse on many Christian coffee cups, right? (laughs) If they made those, they wouldn't sell many. Paul is basically saying, I know he wants me to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen, except I'm probably going to end up in prison, and I'm probably going to have the snot beat out of me. Woohoo! What a life! And yet, he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit to go. I believe God has his hand on my life. I believe that God has something for me to do. I believe that God has somewhere for me to go. I believe God has a purpose for my life. This is the purpose-driven life before Rick Warren made millions off of it, all right? This is Paul saying, God has his hand on me and he has something for me to do. Right here, faith family, do you live that way? Do you live with a sense that God has a purpose for you, and are you doing it? Now, the temptation would be for us at this point is to spiritualize this, to say, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, you know, I don't have a a spiritual vocation, but but, but not so fast. How many of you remember that uh, very classic movie, Chariots of Fire? Most of you have probably seen that or you've heard of it, about Eric Liddell. 1920s Olympic runner. He was also a missionary and a pastor, and what a lot of people didn't understand was why he would not give up running marathons to preach more. He could spend a lot more time in ministry if he wouldn't run. And do you remember that famous line that Eric Liddell said? He said this, I believe God has made me for a purpose, and God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. But we got to stop like dividing. There's these spiritual things that we do, and then there's the rest of my life. If Christ is your life, everything is spiritual. For whether you eat or whether you drink, do all what? 
for the glory of God. If God's made you to run, run for the glory of God. If God's made you a parent, be a parent for the glory of God. If you are a janitor, be a janitor for the glory of God. Man, live for something. Live with a sense that God has got His hand on you to, to be something, to do something. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, then sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Oh, sweep the streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great sweet street sweeper who swept his job well. What has God constrained you to do? Look at me, eyeball to eyeball. What has He entrusted you with? What burden has He put on your heart that you need to live so that you can make a change? You say, Pastor, I can't change the world. I'm not asking you to change the world. I'm asking you to change something in the world for the glory of God. Find out, know what it is God's called you to do in this season of life and do it with every ounce of energy that you have for the glory of God. Man, I know I'm going to end up in prison. I know I'm going to be beaten like Rocky by Mr. T, but I got to go because I got a purpose. In fact, just notice why he's able to endure all this in verse 24. What an amazing verse. I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The reason why I can say, man, I got to go, like the mission is more important is because I put my life on the back burner a long time ago. Christ is my life. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. This isn't about me. Jesus wants me to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. Don't account my life as valuable in that sense. It doesn't mean that I don't count myself as valuable because you are created in the image of God. You are valuable to God. But in light of the mission, I'm second. In light of Christ, I'm last. That He may increase and I may decrease. And as I read verse 24, I just thought, could I say this? And can I, can I say that I don't count my life, that I would give my life for anything if it meant advancing the purpose for which God has placed on my life? Can you say that? I, I feel like this is an entire sermon, but let me just say this quickly and move on. It feels crazy. It feels unrealistic for me to say Surrender your life to the purpose that God has for you. You would feel like that's super spiritual, but is it? Here's what I mean. Parents in the room, you with me? How many of you would say this? I count my life, I don't count my life of any value if only my children are loved. Does that sound crazy? Does that sound unrealistic? Not at all. I'd take death by 10,000 cuts before I'd see my children harmed. I would give my life 
for my kids. Parents, do you feel that way? What about this? How many of you know like firefighters or police officers who would say this? I don't count my life of any value if only the community were safe. That they would put their life in harm's way to keep other people safe. Is that crazy? Is that unrealistic? No, we see people do that all the time. What about this? How many of you served in the military or you know of somebody in the military or you know veterans that would say, I didn't count my life of any value if only I might serve my country. That's not crazy. That's not unrealistic. People do that all the time. So here's my point. If men and women will do that for the love of children, if men and women will do that for the love of community, if men and women will do that for the love of country, then how much more us for the love of Christ? Is not the mission of God greater than any mission you could lay your life down for? The issue is not, will we lay our life down for a mission? The issue is, will we lay our life down for His? And until that's the case, the mission is vague and distant. But in light of a crucified man hanging on a cross, you cannot help but to give your life to whatever He's called you to do. Amen? We could pray and go home, but we're not going to. Number two, not only do you, we got a timekeeper back there, four more hours, let's go. When, when the mission moves in light of the cross from vague to real, not only do you start living with a sense of purpose, but you also start living with a sense of conviction. Let me show you where this is in the text, verse 18. When he came to him, here's what he said. You yourselves know how I lived. You know how I lived among you the whole time since I've been in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Here's what you know. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 25. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And therefore I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Right here, faith family, do you believe in this or not? Do you believe in this or not. Because it's interesting, we're living in a time right now where people are really convicted about who to vote for. And they go around telling everybody, you ought to vote for so-and-so. And we see people who are really convicted that their grandchildren are the most beautiful grandchildren on God's green earth. And they go around and they say, you really ought to look at these pictures that I'm cramming in your face. (laughs) You see, what you're really convicted about will lead you to how you live. Conviction is not just a belief you share. It's what motivates you to act on that belief 
Paul says twice, I didn't shrink back. That phrase in the Greek is the idea of putting up a sail on a sailboat. It's the idea of drifting, of just being afloat. Paul says, here's what you know about me. I never put the sail up. I never shrunk back of declaring to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, of telling you the whole counsel of God, of proclaiming to you the kingdom. I didn't care if you were Jew, if you were Greek, if it was in a home or if it was in a public setting. I believe the gospel. And do you know how I believe the gospel? Because I didn't shrink back from declaring it. That's when you know the mission is gone from vague to real. When the convictions that you have, you begin to act on and you begin to share with others. Now, I had this thought last night. Give me just a moment for a tangent. We, we probably have three hours and 45 minutes left. Think with me. If Paul's mission, verse 24 is to testify to the gospel of grace. Why would he ever be tempted to shrink back? Do you see what I'm asking? Because doesn't everybody love grace? Who gets tired of hearing about grace? I mean, aren't, aren't we a people, even in a culture that says, we love to give people a second chance. We love that we've been given a second chance. We love the grace of God, and that's often because we don't understand the grace of God. Let me tell you what the grace of God is. The man who raped and murdered your daughter, the corporate executive who wiped out your retirement fund, the doctor who murders babies at the seventh month of pregnancy, the abusive husband that was caught with porn, all of those individuals and more are set free in Jesus Christ if they repent and believe. And will be seated next to you in the kingdom of God. Do you like grace now? In fact, it even gets worse. Grace says... You and I are just as bad as they are. Not because we've committed those sins, but because the sin we have committed is what was responsible for the murder of God. But what has God said to you? Welcome. Welcome. Though your sin be as scarlet, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wash it white as snow. I'm going to cast it as far as the east is from the west. Here's my point. You haven't understood the grace of God until it has offended you before it has comforted you. Because you don't realize how much you need grace until you realize how big your sin really is. That's why it's grace. Because <laughs> if you don't see your sin for what it is, you won't even see your need for grace. And in a culture, particularly in America, where people don't like to be offended, have you noticed? 
it will be easy to preach a different gospel. Paul said over my dead body, what you know is when I was with you, I never put the sail up. I never compromised what I believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, people probably say a lot of things about me. He's loud. He's obnoxious. He's not funny. Whatever. Um, But I hope, I hope that what you can't say of me is that I put the sail up and didn't declare to you, thus saith the Lord. Do we believe this or not? I wish I had the time, and I don't. But I wish we could unpack. I'm just going to briefly point your attention to it and then move on. That phrase in verse 26 where Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all. Do you know where that comes from? actually comes from Ezekiel chapter 33. Go home before the Super Bowl, read the first six verses of Ezekiel 33. It will only take you a few seconds. And here's what you're going to find. Here's what, what the Word of God says. If you're the watchman of a city and you know judgment's coming and then you go and warn the city and they don't listen to you, the blood will be on their heads. But if you're the watchman of a city and you know judgment's coming and you don't go tell the city, then the blood will be on your head. Do you understand now what Paul is saying? My conscience is clear. To my family members, to the people I go to school with, to the people that I work with, I did not shrink back in telling them with humility and tears, the good news of Jesus Christ. I am innocent of their blood. You've got to answer, do you believe this or not? Because when the mission becomes real, what moves from the vague to the concrete is your convictions become something you act on. Number three, not only do you start living with a sense of purpose, Not only do you start uh, living with a sense of conviction, but there's also a greater awareness of the battle of which you're in. I take this from verse 28. Look, Look at it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, here's where I get awareness. Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, Paul's saying this. When when you really understand that Christ is your life, when you really understand that the mission is real, that it is what you live every day, then you start to have a greater alertness, awareness that you're in the midst of a war. You don't have little poodles nipping at your heel. Paul says you have fierce wolves that want to devour your life. 
In fact, as I was thinking about this text, I thought about, do you remember that old children's story that you were told when you were a kid, Little Red Riding Hood? Do you remember that? Do you remember Little Red Riding Hood shows up the door and the wolf is dressed up like grandma? And Little Red Riding Hood says, my, what big teeth you have. And the wolf says, the better to eat you with. Which, by the way, I thought, do you realize that we share that to children? Like, is that not a little messed up? Like, have you ever thought about the children's stories that you grew up with? I mean, we have little girls being devoured by wolves who was just going to see grandma. Jack and Jill went up the hill just to get some water. Jack ends up busting his head. Jill comes tumbling after. Really? We got some guy named Peter the pumpkin eater who evidently had a wife and couldn't keep her. So he decided to put her in a pumpkin shell. And there he kept her very well. Where's the feminist outcry over that story? Seriously. Somebody put a baby in a cradle on top of a treetop. And then the wind comes along and the cradle falls, baby and all. Are you serious? We tell these things to our children. Is it any wonder so many of you need counseling? <laughs> that was totally free and irrelevant to the text, except for Little Red Riding Hood, realizing that we don't have little puppies around us. We have fierce wolves who want to devour us. There is false teaching. There is false motives. There are things around us every day. And when we begin to take the mission of God seriously, we begin to take the war we're in seriously. In a lot of ways, and I won't preach last week's sermon, it's a lot like Paul when he walked into Athens and he was alert because the mission was real. Number four, and lastly, how you know that the mission is moved from vague to real is you begin to live in, you begin to value, you begin to see the need for Christian community. Notice how the chapter ends in verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. This is a beautiful, beautiful verse. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christian fellowship? These guys aren't buddies. They're on mission together. Just the very thought of not seeing Paul again made them weep. And I wonder how many of us really live in the importance of this. The church is not just something you attend. Church is a people to whom you belong. And that you live in the reality that you're not alone on this mission. And when you get tired and you get weary 
and you get discouraged that you have people that you've been living on mission with. I'm just curious, who's running with you? Who's, who are you running with? Who is around you? Because listen, when the mission becomes real, you see the importance of having others with you running the race. I want to show you an example of this in Paul's life, and we will close with this. A time when he was discouraged, a time when he was tired, he was afraid, and God brought encouragement in his life through two people. Look just a page or so over to Acts chapter 18 and notice in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome... And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And you can keep reading on and on, but here's what happens. Paul leaves Athens. He's now in Corinth, a very, very pagan city. He is very, very discouraged with the size and weight of the mission. He is afraid. How do you know he's afraid? Because God has to come to him and say, Paul, don't fear. Keep preaching. Keep going. And how does God encourage him? He encourages him through these two individuals, a married couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And just by the way, you know you're in love when you marry somebody whose name rhymes with yours. That's like, that's beautiful. I mean, it, it, it's like Julia Gulia, right? Or wedding singer, right? It's like the ancient Near Eastern version of airbrush t-shirts, you know, Aquila and Priscilla forever, right? I, I would put this wedding up there with these weddings, the Moore Bacon wedding, right? That's just awesome. I would have loved to have been at that reception. Um, the Hunt Capture wedding, okay? <laughs> this is one of my favorites. The Hardy Har wedding. <laughs> that's good. That's just good. Come on, that's good. And then here's my favorite, Mr. and Mrs. McDonald Burger. <laughs> and you know that going into the marriage. Anyways, all right. So Aquila and Priscilla, this married couple, comes into Paul's life and they encourage him. They'd been through hardships together. They, they shared the same trade. They were believers in Christ. And Paul gains encouragement for the mission through their life. In fact, here's what he tells the church of Rome. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Brother and sister, you're not called to do this alone. You are not called to do this mission alone. And so what I ask today is, um, could we not settle for generic Could we, unlike Sarah, be completely content 
with a faith that intersects our life. Could we today stand underneath the shadow of the cross? And to see God in human flesh pierced, broken, bloodied, and understand that that's real. And that it calls us to live with a purpose. It calls us to live with conviction. It calls us to be aware of the war we're in. And it calls us to do it together. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, you know my heart has been that uh, this message today would be practical and would cause us to stop and think about whether or not mission is talk or mission is life. Whether or not Christ is a part of our life or whether Christ is our life. Whether this whole thing called Christianity is just vague and out there or in the concrete of our lives. Oh God, come and convict. Come and make clear what it is that you've called us to do in our individual lives. Deepen in us a conviction for the gospel. Help us be on mission together committed to telling everyone everywhere how they can experience the gospel of transforming grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.